happy Hanukkah? That's what Jesus and his disciples were saying to each other in this gospel story. The word Hanukkah means dedication. And John tells us that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of the dedication, the dedication of the temple. Actually, that's a little unusual because both then and now, Hanukkah is a fairly minor celebration in the Jewish year. Back in Jesus' day, there were three big feasts when everybody who could come to Jerusalem came to Jerusalem for the celebration. Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. But Hanukkah has always been something you can celebrate in your home. But for whatever reason, Jesus was in Jerusalem, walking through the courts of that temple. And that changes the way we hear this story. Hanukkah is the celebration of the rededication of the Jewish temple after it had been defiled by the Syrian occupiers in the 160s BC. Antiochus IV, a real enemy of the Jewish people, was in charge at that time. And although his predecessors had allowed the Jewish people to continue those practices they held most dear, Antiochus ordered that they all had to stop. He banned even the most basic things like praying and offering sacrifices in the temple. Even circumcision was outlawed. And to make his point, and probably to flex a little bit of his imperial muscle, Antiochus IV erected an altar to Zeus right in the middle of the Jerusalem temple. And on the altar where offerings had been given to Israel's God, he commanded that pigs be sacrificed. Well, that was an abomination too far. A faithful priest, Mattathias, and his five sons led a rebellion. And one of those sons, who went on to earn the nickname Judah, Judah the Hammer, became the deliverer of God's people. Judah the Hammer, a pretty fierce warrior indeed, led a small but fierce army to repel the Syrians out of the capital, enabling the Jews to establish again a quasi-independent state. But the altar needed to be cleansed. The unholiness needed to be purged. So Judah commanded that a new altar be built and new holy vessels be fashioned out of precious metal. But when it came time to rededicate the temple, they discovered that there was only enough oil on hand that had not already been defiled to light the temple lamp for one day. You remember the Hanukkah story, but somehow, miraculously, God intervened and made sure that that one day's supply of oil was enough to burn for eight days, long enough for a new supply of oil to be consecrated in the ritual way. That was and still is a good thing to celebrate. 200 years later, with those stories in his mind and on his heart, Jesus walked through those same temple precincts. A charismatic leader with a reputation for religious fervor and a strong following among his people, Jesus was asked, 
How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. That question sounds different during the Feast of the Dedication, doesn't it? When everyone is sharing stories about how Judah the Hammer led our ancestors in victory over the unholy occupiers. Might the same be true about this new Jewish leader? Might Jesus be the one to lead a rebellion against the Romans? Might he be the one to again restore the kingdom to Israel? How long will you keep us in suspense? They asked, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. But Jesus answered them, I have told you already. But you didn't believe. In the first nine chapters of John's gospel account, over and over again, Jesus performs mighty prophetic acts and offers clear religious teaching, revealing his identity as God's anointed, God's Messiah. But what he did and what he said weren't the kind of prophetic actions and words that the people were looking for. They wanted someone to rescue them from the Romans. What did Jesus do? He went to the temple in John chapter 2 and overturned all the tables, questioning the ritual practices of that day. In John 5, he healed someone who was paralyzed on the Sabbath challenging their assumptions about Sabbath observance. In John 6, he fed the 5,000 in the wilderness and in the exchange that followed, began to question the people's assumption about how God would provide for God's people. Then in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man born blind and made it very clear that everyone's assumptions about what it means to be a sinner were all wrong. Each time, Jesus did something and explained to the crowd that what he was doing and saying weren't his actions and words, but words and actions that belonged to his Father and heaven, and still they couldn't see it. The majority of the people were looking for a different sort of Messiah, one that would meet their expectations for that day. They weren't looking for someone who would come and challenge all the faith traditions they held dear. I wonder whether we're any different. Do we come into this sacred place expecting to encounter the one who will question our assumptions about who God is and how God is working among God's people? Or do we come here to make sure that the Jesus we follow conforms to our own image and expectations of what a Savior is supposed to be? Given our human tendency to seek a Messiah of our own imaginings, should it surprise us that we have trouble so often discerning how God is present in the world today? But to those who struggle to recognize who he is, Jesus offers a remarkable teaching about the nature of faith. You do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. Belonging comes before believing. We don't belong because we believe. 
We believe because we already belong. Think about that. Think about the implications of that. Think about what it means for us to belong to a God who loves us first, who claims us as God's own. And only then, from that place of love and belonging, begins to invite us to have faith, to have confidence that that God will provide for us. That means that our faith isn't something that starts within us. It's not something we create on our own. It's not a decision that we make. It's not an understanding that we achieve. Instead, our faith grows out of God's claim on us, God's love for us. Because God has already chosen us as God's children, we can now believe in the one to whom we already belong. Sheep don't choose a shepherd. They hear the shepherd and they follow him. They recognize the one who already knows them and who cares for them. And it is in being known and being cared for that we come to trust in the one who calls each of us by name. We follow him because we belong to him, not the other way around. And that is as challenging for us as it was for Jesus' contemporaries. Because as long as faith is something that starts in here, then we get to decide what sort of savior we need, and we get to choose which religious figure will fit our own personal bill. And as long as it's up to us, we know that we will always design a Messiah who fits our own particular specifications and cast that idol in our own idealized image. But that makes it impossible for us to recognize Jesus. Is it any wonder that contemporary Christians, splintered into our own self-affirming factions, cannot even agree about the basics of who Jesus is? We have all forgotten what it means to belong, and that makes it impossible for us to believe. We cannot believe in Jesus until we recognize the one to whom we belong. We belong not to the one who builds up our own authority, but the one who comes to establish the reign of God. We belong not to the one who comes to make us rich, but to the one who comes to rescue the poor. We belong not to the one who comes to defeat our enemies, but to the one who teaches us to love them and to pray for them. And until we remember that we belong to that Jesus, how can we ever believe that that Jesus is the one who comes to save us, to give us eternal life? So if we want to grow in our faith, if we want to know more deeply what it means to have confidence in God's salvation and trust that God will always take care of us, maybe we need to spend a little less time and effort trying to reconcile Jesus with our own agenda and spend more time listening for his voice. Where will we hear the shepherd's voice? It comes when we sit quietly in prayer, seeking the companionship of the one who loves us 
best. It comes when we stand beside those who are hurting in this world, trusting that Jesus will always be found among their midst. It comes when we listen to those who are vulnerable, to those who are ignored by people in power because their voices give voice to the Christ among us. When we hear that voice and remember that that is the shepherd to whom we belong, the one who comes to rescue the lost, then we learn how to trust in the one who has come to save us as well. After all, if the only voice we're listening for is our own voice, to whom will we turn for salvation? 